Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Um, yeah, here we are. A uh, couple of housekeeping notes before we get into uh, today's discussion. So um, in case you missed our previous episode, if you want to contact us, we've got an email address at uh, leftanchorpodcast at uh, gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Left Anchor or Facebook.com slash Left Anchor. Um, if you want to fund your 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 very own Brett Kavanaugh uh, party as the f- Facebook top lobbyist was doing uh, last night, if I'm not mistaken. Facebook's a good way to do that. What? Wait, wait, I had no idea. What is? What's? What happened? Oh, you didn't hear about this? Oh, yeah. No, no, so no. F- Facebook's t- top lobbyist has been uh, organizing behind the scenes for Brett Kavanaugh because, you know, he's a total business lickspittle and he 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 will not he will declare any attempt to regulate Facebook as any kind of monopoly uh, or monopoly style institution as unconstitutional almost certainly and so after kavanaugh was confirmed on saturday uh, afternoon they had a big party and uh, apparently there's actually an internal rebellion inside facebook because most like probably almost all employees of facebook in california are liberals at least to some extent and they are not cool with this guy so um yeah yeah, it might be the case that like most of uh, Facebook employees are anti-rape, if you could imagine. That might be the case, you would think. Yeah, I think, you know, it, they're the kind of, I'm sure most of them are real enthusiastic Hillary Clinton supporters. You know, I, I doubt they're like Bernie bros. There may be a few, but I think that the, you know, they're just the, the type of people who are outraged at um, the treatment of Christine Blasey Ford who is a, a California professor. Right. I forget Northern the California. school. Yeah. Um, it's got one so, associated with, with Stanford and one Palo Alto something, something that no one's heard of, but I'm sure is prestigious within the field. But yeah. Yeah. So that's a pretty good indication of the, uh, the uh, divergent interests between Facebook as an organization and the kind of, ideology of top-level liberalism you know because at the end of the day these these um business executives i think will almost all of them throw in with trump and with uh drunken sexual assault allegedly uh guy before they will uh regulate those businesses and reduce profits yeah he was allegedly sexual but uh confirmed drunk think i think uh he likes beer and that yeah. was confirmed yeah but yeah uh, but the, the, the good news is now. we <laughs> the good news is we as much as it's tempting to talk more about kavanaugh and the uh, uh atrocious reality of his confirmation we have even more depressing and and uh terrible things to talk about so so there's that yeah so we thought we'd start out today with a little saudi arabia discussion um you know kavanaugh's in there there's really not much we can do about it at this point. Um, so Saudi Arabia, it's come out this this weekend. Um, almost certainly, uh, well, according to the the 
Turkish officials, um, they alleged uh, Saudi Arabia allegedly killed this sort of dissident journalist guy who was a columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, his name was Jamal uh, Khashoggi. I may be mispronouncing that, but a Saudi journalist who had had a Washington Post column over the last year. And he'd been living in Turkey, and um, he he fled the kingdom. Um, in the Saudi Arabia after Mohammed bin Salman, supposed Saudi reformer, took power, and after he. Uh, According to the to the just reading a New York Times article about this, he went to the consulate, the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, to to pick up a document that would allow him to remarry. And according to these Turkish officials, this there was some Saudi agents who murdered him in there, and you know no one's seen him, no one's seen the body, and it seems, you know, hard. It seems like they probably just like off this guy because this is really signature Mohammed bin Salman type of thing. You know, he's um, cast himself as a reformer, but he's a ruthless authoritarian who, who uh, kidnapped a bunch of people, you know, kidnapped a bunch of his political opponents and threw them in, uh, confined them in this hotel, you know, uh, several months ago. And some of them were reportedly tortured and, so anyways, you know, he's a bad dude. He's a bad dude. And there was no one who emerged at the uh, journalist did not emerge. The security tapes and everything show there's no evidence that he ever came back out of the consulate in Istanbul. So um, if he wasn't murdered, we don't know. It's he, he is missing from within the consulate otherwise, which is bizarre. Yeah, very strange. Very strange. And I think this is, you know, this is mainly notable um, as a sort of, you know, commentary or, or just an illustration of the absolute stupidity of the American elite establishment. I, you know, maybe a mixture of stupidity and corruption is the right word for it because, you know, last year this guy, Mohammed bin Salman, did a, you know, tour of the United States and he um, met with all of these top shelf liberals and business executives and pretty much all of them um, just bought his reformer shtick hook line and sinker Thomas Friedman had a had a piece <laughs> that was you know it was like 2,000 words long or something and you know he says quote the most significant reform process underway anywhere in the Middle East right uh, today is in Saudi Arabia after talking to this guy for like a couple days, David Ignatius had a big... Uh, no, wait, to be uh, fair to Friedman, to be fair to Friedman, the Saudi prince got in a taxi cab first and drove him around. And then it was only then, after riding in the cab with him, that he realized that he was sincere and he could totally legitimately report on the reforms. So that's to his credit. Absolutely. Um, yeah, David Ignatius had a, had a very credulous piece. Jeffrey Goldberg had, I think, a somewhat less credulous, but still very um, kind of bending over backwards to sort of listen to his side of his side of things. And the, and the reason for that, I think, is is you can you can see in the title of the of the interview article and transcript. Um, so this is from April this year, and the title the title of the article is Saudi Crown Prince Iran's Supreme Leader Makes Hitler Look Good. 
subtitle. In a wide-ranging conversation, Prince Mohammed bin Salman also recognized the Jewish people's right to their own land. So you see what my, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg's priorities are in this particular question. He's, uh, he's not really worried about Saudi Arabia, or the United States for that matter. Imagine that. So we have a quote-unquote reformer prince. I feel like this is an episode of Syriana, which was not a TV show but a movie. But uh, it's just like <laughs> the uh, what? What is about what? What is it with the credulity here? Do you think like what besides obvious corrupt vested interest in in excusing alliances with terrible terrible authoritarians? What uh, what gives here? Um. Well, before I try to answer that, let me let me just add some more people that do it. Um, do it. Ben Salman got photo ops and respectful interviews from. So there's Jim Mattis, Secretary of Defense. There's Christine Lagarde, who is she still high, head of the IMF? I'm not sure about that. Um, anyway, still a top global elite person. There's Michael Bloomberg, you know, famous billionaire. Bill and Hillary Clinton, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, um, Richard Branson. And, you know, probably a dozen other people that were not um, uh, mentioned in this particular, you know, very serious articles. Oh, yes. Eric Garcetti. Yeah. The mayor of Los Angeles. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe to start out with. What do you think, Alexi? What, why? Why are we letting this? Why are we letting this guy? Um, get away with this. If, oh wait, hang on. There's more but, background we need to. But to need wait, to get into. but wait. There's more. There's so more. there's there's also um, Mohammed bin Salman started a war in Yemen that's killed like many tens of thousands of people. There's a famine basically going on. Critical shortage of uh, you know medicine. You know most of the infrastructure has been knocked out and. For, for pretty much no reason, they just basically turned this into a failed state as sort of like a kind of half-thought-out proxy war with Iran. But also, um, a while uh, a while ago, the, the Associated Press um, reported that as part of that war, Saudi Arabia is providing uh, funding and, and uh, arming to al-Qaeda in the area with the knowledge of the United States military. They says, quote, key participants in the pact said the U.S. was aware of their arrangements and held off on any drone strikes. And they're recruiting jihadis into their sort of coalition also. Um, and so, yeah, th- this, is, this is the background. The guy is uh, murdering... Uh, Washington Post journalist, who is also a U.S. resident. I think he had legal residency, this uh, Washington Post journalist, uh, is creating the worst humanitarian disaster in the world for no reason and is literally arming al-Qaeda. What's going on? Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? (laughs) Uh, I think, no, so, and, you know, it, it, it just begs the question, you know, what Cretans won't we ally ourselves with? Like, what does it take? Like, what if anything? So I wonder how much of it is a, um, 
coupling of misguided self-interest or national interests um, with the complete, I mean, since the Trump administration began, there's hardly even a pretense to care about things such as humanitarian aid or humanitarian realities or um, the ways in which are um, you know, contributing to, to terrible uh, human, right, human rights abuses um, reflect poorly on us as a country. You know, the, the, the United States um, reputation around the world and our, and our leadership and their reputation has just gone down terribly. And it seems to be all the more uh, motivating to, to Trump to make America great again and America first. And, and uh, the more hate, the better in a way. It's kind of like owning the libs, but it's like owning the world, you know, in some some strange way. It's like trolling at the highest level. Um, but, you know, one would think there might be more pernicious uh, motives having to do with uh, the reasons for allying with, with the Saudi prince and, and how that might... Um... Yeah, I, I don't know. So, so the question is not uh, what can excuse it, but what of the many pernicious reasons might explain it? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're gonna we're gonna talk about Machiavelli in a second, and I think a lot of liberals on the left interpret the Saudi alliance through a sort of Machiavellian framework, as if this kind of makes sense in a cynical way. That you know, America is allying with Saudi Arabia because America writ large gets oil from Saudi Arabia, and because. America writ large gets its defense contractors to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia and, you know, thereby benefit in that way from their their uh, sort of quasi-genocidal war in Yemen. But I'm not really convinced by that. I don't think it makes sense on, on cynical grounds. I mean, there is a lot of cynicism in the Saudi alliance and the, and the decisions that people make. Uh, to support that alliance, but I think in your, you know, if you're if you're taking any kind of uh, any view of the Americans' national interest, the Saudi alliance is against it. It is harming us, and I think what it really is is a story about corruption. I think it's a story about how the Saudis have spent billions upon billions of dollars hiring up all the big lobbying firms. They got ties to both parties. You know, the Podesta group, which has been shut down because of, uh, so this, this is a, this is a lobbying firm, which is run by, um, Tony Podesta, who's the uh, brother of John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they were big time Saudi clients, uh, and um, but then also on the Republican side, you know, they 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 basically spread their money around D.C. and they find many many takers, and they basically just get all these either stooges or people who are just incredibly stupid. Like 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 Thomas Friedman is unbelievably stupid. I mean, you 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 know. You, you you can't almost incomprehensible that this person can string enough words together to make a coherent sentence to 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 swallow this this 
this fucking guy's shtick. I'm the liberal <laughs> reformer, you know. To, uh, hang on, I'm I'm just washing this blood off of my latex gloves. <laughs> Absolute fucking morons. But I think more importantly, they're just buying everybody. They're buying the think tanks. They're buying the politicians. Right. They're buying the, um, you know, all the law firms and whatnot. And as a result, we are lending them. America as a polity is lending them our sovereignty at our own expense. People are profiting. All these lobbyists and lawyers and politicians are profiting. And the defense, the various contractors are, are, are benefiting in that we, they, they get the money from the, from the sales. But America as a whole, you know, they, those are, that is a tiny fraction of the population. We're talking like 0.1% of the population. Most of them live in Northern Virginia, and they all suck. They live in McMansions. They're bad people. But they, you know, the rest of the population is is being harmed, you know? How, ma- how many, like, young children are growing up in Yemen dedicated to just, like, massacring as many Americans as possible? Probably more than a few, and for completely understandable reasons. Um, and I think that's what makes the most sense in my head. It's, yeah, that makes the most sense to me too. I, but I, but that's just part and parcel of the Trump Trump administration's uh, approach to domestic policy. To be honest, yeah. So uh, if you can um, throw the red meat to the base and basically um, project the kind of fears, uh, racism, economic anxiety, what have you, onto various groups that you lambast and are cruel to. Um, and, you know, basically inflame the sexism and racism and homophobia, uh, then you can distract and entertain um, the populace uh, long enough to kind of cut the massive tax deals to help your your donors or your, your true base uh, with domestically. Um, meanwhile, you can make the same kinds of deals to improve um, the small amount of elites that, that benefit from this kind of corruption. Uh, all the while, you know, talking the, the right kind of talk to say that America uh, is being put first and, and actually this is true patriotism. So it just seems part and parcel of the same cynical strategy, which um, never had the common good or actual uh, interests of the people uh, and the sovereignty of the country at, at heart, but instead was always, you know, the, the, the classical Greek uh, notion of the the deviant or corrupted regime, which is all, all about private interests, um, that was clearly always what what motivated everything. But public public opinion, however, uh, that supports the ability of the elites to do that is shaped by institutions like these think tanks, like these journalists, um, and it's important to call out those that are supposed to help shape the understanding of the people writ large as to what's going on and how they can be bought off as well. So it's not just those that are elected to power that are corrupt, but, but these mediating institutions and uh, that's, that's almost just as dangerous. And so, um, you know, they should not go without uh, being called out as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, in a, in a article a while ago, I, I uh, quoted uh, Jugurtha, the Numidian king, um, from back in the Roman Republic days, and he said supposedly about the about Rome in his time. Yonder lies a city put up for sale, and its days are numbered if it finds a buyer. And mm. I, th- I think that more or less is what has happened to us here. Um, you know, we're we're in 
in both domestic and foreign policy. The whole state has just been this termitic infestation of corruption from all sides. And it's just Rots. all Pure about rot. the narrowest possible conception of of personal self-interest and just like gross, um, you know, helping commit war crimes and stuff. And that's not going to persist. I mean, it, it might persist in a, in a different form with, with different bad actors. But, um, you know, speaking of Machiavelli, right, there's a, a bit of a misperception about Machiavelli. Um, what, one of the things that people don't understand is he made an important distinction between um, tyrannical rule that was just about power and private interest and rule that actually prolonged the empire or the republic and sought the true glory of um of that republic of of that um of that place and and so the 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 difference of course is that while it's true that machiavelli thought that the ends did justify the means and if you know as as a realist or maybe the first of the realists in political philosophy um, he certainly thought that if you had evil to do, get it out of the way. And he had lots of practical advice about how best to um, do that evil. He thought that it was only worth doing if that was ultimately going to secure true glory and true lasting uh, success, right? For um, those people on behalf of which you're ruling. And so, uh, Trump and, and his, his cronies are certainly not doing that. They, they're in the camp that is after their own power and care nothing for, for true glory or true uh, lasting success of, of the Republic. So um, he's not even properly Machiavellian. And Machiavelli also said that you have to know how not to be good, right? He wrote you have to know how not to be good, but it's important that you appear to be good, and perhaps with his own people, Trump appears to be good. I'm not sure. But for most you know, onlookers, it, it seems like a very obviously diseased body politic and a very obviously corrupt government that he's leading. Yeah, maybe as a, as a possible um, hypothetical or an example here, you know, we could talk about this. This news just broke today, I believe, um, that... The Chinese Communist Party had arrested the head of Interpol. Uh, Who's Chinese, the, right? Yeah, the president of Interpol, who is Chinese. And, uh, Meng Hongwei, probably butchering that pronunciation again. Um, but we could, we could just assume that you butcher all the pronunciations. And <laughs> yeah, of course. Well. If, if it's not Spanish or uh, uh, Bantu languages, I'm probably messing it up. <laughs> Um, but yeah, just reading from a Washington Post story about this, uh, says Meng is, is concurrently a Chinese deputy minister of public security. He was elected to head Interpol in 2016 and was slated to serve at its headquarters in Lyon, France until 2020. He's since resigned after being, you know, basically, uh, uh, jumped by the Chinese, um, communist officials for some reason. And, you know, they're saying it's some kind of corruption, but, you know, the, the, uh, this post, you know, also says like, um, the post story says China is now in the sixth year of a vast anti-corruption campaign launched by president Xi 
Jinping that has netted thousands of officials and business executives. Critics in China and abroad have warned that many corruption investigations are politically motivated and used to consolidate uh, Xi's power and topple rival, rival factions. Um, quite similar to Mohammed bin Salman, actually. Uh, he, he uh, I don't this several months ago, last year at some point, he also did a sort of like palace coup type of thing and just like consolidated his, his position and sort of entrenched himself more or less as dictator for life unless he gets toppled by somebody else as the, as the head of China, the world's uh, most populous and, and lar- uh, populous country and largest economy now almost, you know, probably if you uh, count their their GDP correctly. And I so I, I count it correctly personally. <laughs> <laughs> um, the question here is, is, uh, you know, if you like Machiavellian is one of those, it's like an adjective that it's, it's come to sort of like, sort of like Orwellian in a sense where like it, it might not even, it's questionable whether that refers to what he's actually saying or whether it's sort of a character of what he says. Maybe it's more clear in the case of Orwell, but um, in The Prince, Machiavelli, uh, you know, very cynical about power, maybe very realistic. I guess it depends, but maybe this is a good place to start. So in your view... Um, do you do you think that the the cynicism? Do, do you think if Machiavelli were here that he would approve of the sorts of things that that Pre, uh, President Xi and Mohammed bin Salman have been doing? Mm. Is that wise policy? Right. So that's a good question. I, I think one. I'm not sure I have enough information to to uh, not about Machiavelli, but about the basis for their decisions, but. More importantly, I think based on the perception that is being given, right? So because a skilled ruler from Machiavelli, despite any evil that might be done, would always be able to give the impression of doing something good or at least instill fear to quell any resistance. Um, I I don't know about China, um, but um, when it comes to the Saudis and to the Trump administration's treatment of them, I don't think it's 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 very skilled, right? I don't think virtu, right, is Machiavelli's um, twist on the word virtue, but is more um, aptly described as perhaps uh, skill or, or um, deftness of adapting to a situation and doing the thing that's necessary. Sometimes that requires being a, like a lion, sometimes like a fox, um, but above all, it is um, it is a, a deftness in in dealing with political circumstance and. Uh, and so it's a matter of whether necessity requires that evils be done, because evils should not be done unless necessary. So um, given that, I, 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 uh, I don't know enough about China, but uh, likely in both instances, I probably think it's not something Machiavelli would approve, um, because it just seems hard to believe that necessity requires those things, and, and that it's even more likely to believe that there were other ways to deal um, with whatever political uh, choices they had at hand. And so, yeah, I, I think Machiavelli would have um, would have favored a, a more skillful understanding of um, 
what actions to do to basically uh, instill the kind of support you need to to not have your regime destabilized. Now, again, with China, there's probably not a lot that could be done that would destabilize their power. Um, so that's kind of a, a, a distinct situation that, um, yeah, I don't know what it would take in order to get uh, uh, their regime to, to topple, but it would take quite a lot. So um, they, they've done a fine job with what they have at hand. But, uh, but yeah, for the Saudis, it seems like all they need to do is have a uh, <laughs> an ally like the U.S. under the Trump administration that's willing to put up with all their um, human rights violations and, and, and nonetheless feel compelled to work with them. And uh, I think that would not have flown. Uh, in fact, that's probably why they hated the Obama administration, in fact. So uh, I don't know if they've done the calculus properly, understanding that a Trump administration is necessarily limited. So uh, that might have also been a miscalculation. Yeah, maybe a quotation is in order here. I'm just looking at a bit a page from the Prince. Um, <clears throat> he says, uh, this is from chapter uh, 17, uh, concerning cruelty and clemency and whether it is better to be loved than feared. <laughs> and um, he says, uh, you know, a couple of pages down, uh, quote, Nevertheless, a prince ought to inspire fear in such a way that if he does not win love, he avoids hatred because he can endure very well being feared whilst he is not hated, which will always be as long as he abstains from the property of his citizens and subjects and from their women. But when it is necessary for him to proceed against the life of someone, he must do it on proper justification and for manifest cause. But above all things, he must keep his hands off the property of others because men more quickly forget the death of their father than the loss of their patrimony. So, you know, yeah, very cynical, but I think, you know, the Chinese situation is a lot less clear. Uh, it certainly could be the case that this guy is somehow guilty of something or the other. I certainly would be a bit skeptical of that, but it's, it's much more opaque and the Chinese uh, regime seems a lot more formidable and a lot more competent than the uh, Saudi regime, certainly. But the the Saudi regime, you know, they have managed, you know, acor- according to the reporting I've seen, Turkey is really mad. They're not happy about this. It's it's uh, you know, I mean, just the precedent it sets that that. They're yes. they're gonna murder someone in the Turkish consulate, so this is Turkish territory, you know, and and just just because, like this this guy, I had barely even heard of him before this. He's just one of like fifty Washington Post columnists. Like, I I would think that his, you know, damage to the regime of Saudi Arabia was minimal, minimal, yeah. negligible, and they're right. gonna kill this guy. In in a foreign country, on a on a pretext of having to get a document, like it's just like, yeah, yeah, that is uh, reckless. Besides, besides, be exactly. Besides being vile, Machiavelli would call it reckless and and um, the opposite of wise, right? Um, it, you know, Machiavelli says that you, 
you should be both feared and loved, but never hated. Yes. And you're, you're hated once you start taking the property of your people. But I would say you're also hated by other countries, right? When you start um, pulling this kind of nonsense on their territory. Now, granted, the consulate might technically be Saudi soil, but it was also Saudi yeah. soil within Turkey, right? So uh, to do such a inflammatory thing and disturb relations with Turkey over such a, as you say, inconsequential um, at least globally and, and politically, uh, problem, um, besides being inhumane is just stupid. Um, so I, I, I don't know, you know, th- this, this prince might be, uh, not long for this world, the way he's, he's acting with, with his impulsive arrogance and, um, delusions of grandeur, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, yeah, a question of risk versus reward. You know, and what what have what have you uh, what have you achieved? You got rid of a critic. What have you done to yourself? You have confirmed in the minds of everyone that you yes. are a ruthless murderer and a liar, and right. and just a, an absolutely duplicitous and degenerate uh, government that See, can't be that, trusted. That's, that's a great. Okay, so so here's the real key for how Machiavelli would understand this. So Machiavelli, his project was was one to, um, like his realism was to say to everyone from Plato to Augustine, you know, forget about these ideal worlds up in the sky. Let's let's think about human nature and actual responses to behavior here on Earth, um, and how things appear to be to people, and and what that does uh, to them, and how they react. And so he was all about like crafting the right appearances politically so as to get good results, right, for, for your uh, republic or for your empire. And, and here it's very much um, clear what kind of appearances are being created by this kind of behavior and these kind of actions. And they will not turn out well, right? Um, because it's pretty clear, as you say, how the world will view someone so clearly ruthless and vile. Yeah, and this, you know, the um, this is maybe a good place to bring up the kind of social context of Machiavelli at the time, especially in in the Prince, which is, uh, you know, you're Italy in the 1500s, and um, Italy at this time was not one country, of course. It it was this incredible hodgepodge of different not just different boundaries, but different types of boundaries. So you had the papal states, you had all these little city-states, and then you had, like, various duchies and principalities and stuff, and it just was an incredible mess. And the, um, you know, it had been for hundreds of years just one of the, you know, talk about ruthless politics like the like some of those notorious for its ruthless politics to where you know just backstabbery and and um you know bribery and winning by any means necessary and uh you know constant wars usually not very big ones but just like that uh every day all the time wars for this and that and uh I think, you know, I think perhaps something that, at least in the in the Prince, which maybe isn't like the full flowering of Machiavelli's thought, we're going to get to the discourses in a minute, but, you know, he's 
somewhat taking for granted that level of cynicism and that level of immorality um, as sort of being the background, you know. But you you look at uh, the United States today where, uh, you know, we're in lots of wars, but we live also in an age where great power wars have become all but unthinkable, you know, because it would mean nuclear wars and it would mean just like vaporizing your entire population in, in a matter of minutes. And so, um, you know, that does kind of change the calculation. And I think that maybe Machiavelli underrates the possibility that A, the technology of war will change and, all, and B, that, that background morality will change such that um, people's expectations really do come to bear down hard enough on the on the leaders and upon the governments to to prevent them from doing horrible things hmm. yeah no that that's interesting um i could be wrong though no no no. That, that, yeah as you say i mean in the discourses you know which we won't get to at, the, at this moment in time um he becomes one of the first true supporters of uh, classical republicanism with a little R and the virtues of um, kind of respecting the non-domination of the citizenry and having citizens involved in, in, in the body politic. Um, but when it comes to the prince, which is about advice to uh, founders first and foremost. So that's an important thing to understand. So there's, there's advice to founders and what's required to found a great new um right empire or republic versus the discourses which is about how you sustain and prolong um a place that has already been founded um you know there there are uh there are any number of practical tips that he's giving but he he does understand uh as you say that you have to deal with people as they are um, not how you'd like them to be. And, you know, his cynicism isn't the type of cynicism that uh, misapprehends um, the reaction that the public would have to tyrannical rule. In fact, that's part of why he's advising rulers to, to not act in certain ways. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, so I you know, he basically says, like, you have to either caress the people or crush them, <laughs> right? And 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 so in in that sense, it's it's about understanding the nature of power and how it's won and lost. Um, and so he has a lot to teach, and he's trying to teach. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think that context you gave is is, is helpful and important, and um, and reminds us as as you know. As with any analysis, he was one of the first to, to suggest that the historical context tells you a whole lot that you need to understand. And, and today, we would be remiss if we didn't think of, of uh, both the Saudis, China, and Trump in the context of their, uh, their own histories nationally, but also just where we are globally right now um, with the new technology, with the new weapons of mass destruction, um, and the complexities involved. So uh, above all, there's no prescriptions... Uh, that he would give that are standardized, but but above all, he would want people now to take into account all these um, contextual realities that that would advise how to um, to truly achieve uh, honor and glory for for a given people. So, yeah, 
<clears throat> yeah, and I think maybe, you know, as a closing comment on the prince, um, what maybe the most, I feel like the most important thing Machiavelli has to teach to modern audiences and um, the most, uh, the thing that resonates strongest to me when I'm when I'm reading over this uh, this stuff is that uh, cynicism is really it's it's not a reliable guide to what is wise, and that's sometimes being brutal and um, you know betraying people is is smart you know and effective, and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's dumb. And I think that lesson has been really profoundly, uh, mis- you know, mislearned or, or uh, underappreciated in a modern context, you know, on the right, maybe especially on the right, but also on the left. You know, it's it's not always the case that being the most cynical, uh, you know, the most cynical move is the way to go. No, in fact, that's very anti-Machiavellian anti in an important sense. You know the phrase, fortune favors the bold. Well, that, that comes straight out of the prince, right? And uh, Lady Fortuna, right, he, he, um, he genders fortune and, and luck as, as a lady. And this is there's a long history of, of um, understanding the role of, uh, well, for the Christians before in the medieval period, providence, and then before that... Um, just the you know whether whether you conceive of it as fate or the role of um, you know the universe what have you there's this balance between your agency what you can control and uh, things you can't control so for Machiavelli um, Lady Fortuna right favors those who are bold who have have the uh, the will and this is kind of a uh, a forerunner for um, for Nietzsche actually but. Uh, those who, in a circumstance, do the bold thing are, are more likely than not to be rewarded. And for the left, especially, this is this is the opposite of cynicism, which hamstrings and, and tells you to, uh, you know, be apathetic or not go for it. Um, and these these terrible little um, petty crimes and, and humanitarian uh, disasters that um, that are perpetuated are, are the opposite of bold, right? Um, so if the left wants to learn from Machiavelli, it would learn in a time of crisis, especially a time where, um, there's an opportunity to, to be bold and, and, um, historical circumstances are more likely to align with you if you, um, if you exercise that for two and that skill in that moment. So, so that's something I think we can, we can take heart from and, and we can, whether it's resisting Trump, whether it's resisting corruption, whether it's pushing, uh, for you know, utopian demands um, for leftist policies. Um, cynicism certainly isn't uh, a kind of a weapon that, that will help us win any battles. Yeah, anyway, so my, I think the the first thing that, that struck me about the discourses is, like, it's quite different in terms of tone and in terms of emphasis than the... Right. Uh, the prince and um you know it's it's like a it's a it's like a defense of a republican government as 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 he sees in uh rome as being like a a successful and, and indeed the best way of organizing a society which is something that i think would be 
quite foreign to the people who had, you know, read and internalized the prints at least. Yep. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. You want to give us a quick breakdown of like what the discourse is about, what the argument is? Sure. So Machiavelli's discourses on Livy are his reflections on the historian Livy's accounts of, of Rome. And um, as Machiavelli tends to do, his his way of understanding truth, or, or I should say understanding what is um, to be gleaned from, um, you know, epistemologically, his approach to knowledge is historical. And so he thinks we can learn from the great... Uh, the great Republic, the, the, the great, uh, glory of Rome. And, um, and so he studies a great historian to see what he can learn that would be helpful to, um, to founding. He wants to be a founder of his own sorts, right. To founding a new kind of political philosophy for the future. And so in, in doing that, he sees all the advantages of a classical republical republican government, which is, um, you know, fostering liberty and uh, having f- factions that uh, are allowed to um, create wisdom through kind of the what, what would later become the kind of marketplace of ideas and and through kind of uh, the um, the elites and those. Uh, of the lower classes clashing in their interests. And so this would become, um, you know, a a way in which uh, stability could be um, prolonged by these various interests um, going at each other in a kind of republic that has liberty as its, as its key. So, you know, the overall argument is just the many uh, historical accounts that lend credence to this argument. Um, in favor against tyranny and in favor of Republican liberty. Um, so yeah, so, so, so it's kind of, um, just a chapter by chapter approach, justifying, uh, this new political philosophy he's trying to promote, um, which is different from the Prince, but different from the Prince because the Prince was advice to particular potential founders of regimes who might um, create lasting glory, and they might have to do terrible things at the outset. But this is indeed how you establish rule of law, which he says is important, and uh, systems and structures uh, of Republican governance that will be the key to glory, right? Which, for Machiavelli, again, um, he is a modern, maybe the first modern before Hobbes even, in the sense that he diverges from the ancients and the medievals in seeing some kind of sunum bonum or highest good as the goal of politics is definitely just temporal, but it's not quite Hobbesian, um, which is just about temporal peace. It's more about the immortality that comes through glory and through, uh, you know, the name of say a Caesar or Rome continuing on in the history books. So he thinks that true immortality comes from having uh, a regime that lasts throughout history because of the the greatness of the people and the system that allows liberty to flourish essentially yeah so he uh he looks at france a lot right france being a kind of 
absolutist monarchy at this point in history. And he has a lot of good things to say about that. Right. He's, he says it's, it's moderated by the, the rule of law and that, you know, it's a very secure and, um, it, it has the, um, you know, a lot of what people would like in a good society. But then he goes on to sort of criticize it as saying that France is lacking in liberty, right? And that it, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, it's it's like, it's sort of, you know, what, what you might call a, a, a mild tyranny of a sort. Like, the people are very secure, but they're not free. You know, there's little crime, but they have no control over what's happening in the, in society. And, um, so he sort of like moves from that, um, praising France on, on to sort of just outlining its limitations, uh, you know, in a sense. Is that a fair, fair, uh, summary? That that is fair. Um, and, and I think, so let me read from a passage in um, book one, chapter two of the discourses, which kind of foreshadows uh, what would become kind of the mixed regime that uh, Aristotle talked about a bit, but uh, that Machiavelli really kind of revived and, and what is familiar to us today. Um, you know, if, if you think about um, the American Republic, right, and the three branches, uh, in a sense, you have a mix of a monarchy, the executive, right, an oligarchy, the Senate, um, and a democracy in the House of Representatives. And, and that mix and those checks and balances um, are by design, right? So, so here's a little passage um, from Machiavelli. So he's talking about the different forms of government, right? Um, and he says, those who know how to construct constitutions wisely have identified this problem, and there's the problem of the forms of government, and have avoided each one of these types of constitution in its pure form, constructing a constitution with elements of each. They have convinced, uh, they've been convinced such a constitution would be more solid and stable, would be preserved by checks and balances, there being present in the one city a monarch, an aristocracy, and a democracy." So here with, with Machiavelli, you have this setup of the three branches, essentially, and how they balance each other. And uh, this stability theme uh, has continued from the ancient times, but is for Machiavelli um, a, a very evident thing that has to happen in order to, um, to foster the kind of liberty that you need to, to have a lasting, glorious regime. Yeah, um you know this this section i thought i was i was a little uh skeptical of i suppose uh or maybe resistant is a better word you know because you think of like what do i hate most about the american constitution well the unitary executive <laughs> and the senate and the supreme court they're all yeah. terrible um but i think that that you know if you were to look at this in a little more historical perspective you might say that that this, as um, as time progresses, it becomes more and more, uh, you know, constitutional forms have to keep up with the times, and they have to keep up with what, you know, what people are expecting. And, um, 
you know, so if if you're looking at an institution like the Senate, perhaps in 1790, this is a reasonable, uh, you know, this is a reasonable sort of like compromise to sort of get the, you know, get the unified government through. Um, and you can, you know, you can say on the other hand, like, like countries that have had like zero experience of democracy and haven't had any chance to build up sort of democratic institutions, you know, it's like sort of like, um, just going straight into parliamentary democracy from a dictatorship has proven to be a pretty difficult uh, thing to do in a lot of African, Middle Eastern countries. Um, but yeah, then the, on the other hand, you know, it's like you you look at the United States today and where, you know, in, in California, there are uh, 60, like 66, 67 times as many people as there are in the smallest state, Wyoming. Um, and that's considerably more. That's a much larger variation between the smallest and the largest states um, in, when the Constitution was signed, you know, and... Um, I think that there's a case to be made that 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 sort of a sort of a system is kind of a degenerated like this, you know, the checks and balances is, is, you know, maybe appropriate for its time, but it's also critical, I would say, to keep those things in to, to maintain their legitimacy, according to the sort of developing, you know, ideology of the population and what is considered to be more legitimate. Um, and also in just in terms of the, you know, overall kind of, you know, fairness for lack of a better word that, that, um, you know, five, 550,000 yeah. people in Wyoming get, uh, right. uh, as much voice as 37 million in, um, in California. That's just, that's fucking indefensible. It's absurd. No, it's absurd. Uh, you know, and and one thing that Machiavelli and then later Locke would do is establish this this kind of notion that as long as people's property is being taken care of and, and there's not a tyranny insofar as people's stuff is being taken away, they they won't really care what's happening uh, so much. Um, and, and I think this this kind of inversion we've talked about before, where um, a more democratized um, what we would call a socialist understanding of, of the body politic oriented to the good that's common to all is uh, subordinated to just kind of personal uh, households and private goods being um, maximized, right? Uh, that works out as long as enough people, right, feel like they are actually surviving, if not thriving in that way. And if it's not actually taking their property, uh, the economic system that we have with our corrupt elites uh, depriving people of even opportunity for work and barely being able to survive economically is one where um, those type of anti-democratic institutions are going to just make people all the more upset, where they might have put up with it, right, if their personal household and, the, and their um, kind of property growth was sufficient to uh to keep them appeased otherwise so um 
yeah, besides the, the kind of weapons of mass destruction and technology uh, not being anticipated in the, the 15th century, <laughs> just <laughs> the, the kind of global capitalist structures that we have and how that relates to people's personal uh, households is, is also something that was not uh, easily foreseen. So, um, yeah, that, that there's something that modernity has has failed miserably at at this point in time. So. This, uh, you know, maybe as a as a sort of final comment on the discourses, um, this was an area where I thought um, Machiavelli had a had a, a very wise um, a, a notion, I guess, was which was that you know the process of public reason. He's 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 maybe somewhat naively trusting of of the ability of the public to sort of like work through what is best and and discern between two different people um as to who is the more credible but um yeah. he he does make one point which i think is is very is very uh, uh appropriate and accurate which is that the nice thing about a at a, about a republican form in which like the the you know the public is involved very heavily is that you can change what you're doing uh, quickly and easily, and he, he, right. get, he gives the example of uh, you know Scipio Africanus going to going to fight Hannibal. That that was like, oh, this isn't working. We're going to just sort of turn on a dime and like you know hire somebody else and um, you know six, change our entire method of doing war. And um, I think that that is more appropriate than ever in the uh in the modern age and i think this is why democracies thrive today even despite being democracy being a necessarily like fairly dysfunctional form of government a lot of the time um is that you know the thing about capitalism is things change a lot you know we have economic productivity and that means you things change quickly and that means you have to make a lot of decisions like regularly you know the the roman empire could survive for you know like most of five six hundred years or something like that because things didn't change very much it was basically the same peasants growing the same food year after year after year and nowadays it's like the the shifting winds of trade go back and forth and production and and you know things go all over the place and you have to deal with those, you know, the, the government has to make decisions and, you know, the, the, for all of its flaws, democracy gives you a regular process by which you can make new decisions and you're not just stuck with the same, you know, degenerate, uh, inbred king until the guy happens to croak. So I think that's a pretty, a pretty appropriate and it, and quite a for a far sighted idea. That's true, and and I would say a democratic republic, because above all, he was small r republican in that sense. Yeah, and, and so, um, you know, rule of law and habits and customs, and he was for. Uh, political religion and and so he kind of saw the usefulness of religion and the usefulness of a political religion or a civic religion that Rousseau would pick up on um, in order to keep people united behind um, yeah giving the energy to that flexible system to adapt as necessary so that that yeah he, he was he was a, a brilliant mind and and uh, in, in many ways super formative um, and we definitely could use 
some of that uh, deft, agile political thinking today, for sure. Cool. Well, I guess that uh, that does it for for this episode. Unless you have any more comments. No, that'll do it. We'll see y'all next time. Excellent. Bye-bye.